Well, good morning. It's good to see each of you here on a kind of dreary Sunday morning, and maybe that's how you feel today um, emotionally. I know that I can be that way when the weather's gray. I can kind of feel gray myself, and I'm mindful of this, and I'm thankful for the fact that when we come to a service like this, it's not our worthiness that matters. It's a question of whether or not we feel our need of Christ that prepares us for corporate worship. We sing a song here regularly called, Come Ye Sinners Poor and Needy. And one of the verses of that song goes this way, Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. The only fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. And that's why we're here. And we need the Lord, we need Christ, we need the Holy Spirit now to come as we look to the Bible. So let's pray together and ask the Lord for his help as we look to the word. Our Father, we come to you, not from a position of strength, not from a place of having it all together. Uh, we come here acknowledging, just like the, the public and the tax collector um, in Luke 18, that we are sinners who are in need of your mercy. We pray that you would be merciful to us this morning. You already have been. We pray you would continue being merciful and good and faithful to us, not because we deserve it, but because you are a gracious God and because you have adopted us through your son to be your children. Minister to us now as we look to your word. Come by your spirit. Fill me as the preacher of your word so that I might be helpful to these dear people who have gathered here today. And we pray for all of us that you would give us by your spirit ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that would be receptive to the word. We pray that you would keep doing your work in us by your spirit to conform us into the image of Jesus. Use this preaching time to that end, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, last week, we considered how we follow a suffering Christ. How the pattern of the Bible is one of suffering and then glory. That's true for Jesus. It's also true for Christ's people. In this life now, we are weak. We will struggle. We will suffer. There is a glory that awaits. And that's the hope that we have that will be realized through Christ Jesus. If you were not here with us last week, you can listen to that, that message from the first part, or excuse me, the latter part of Mark chapter 8 and the very beginning of Mark 9 um, on our church's website. I leave that to you. I hope it's helpful to you as you think about your life this side of, of heaven. Today, we're going to be shifting gears slightly because that's what the text does. We're going to witness three of the disciples getting a glimpse of Jesus's glory, that kind of glorified state that awaits us also. We're going to get a glimpse of that, a taste of that, as Peter, James, and John see the glorified Christ transfigured before them. That is a glory that we will one day share in, and it is a glory, like John 17, 24, that we will behold forever, that Christ desires for us to be with him where he is, that we might see his glory that the Father gave him before the foundations of the earth because the Father loved the Son. We're going to be thinking about those things together this morning from the Gospel of Mark. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Mark chapter 9 and verse 2. We're going to be spending our time today looking at a relatively small portion of text compared to some of the sermons in Mark's Gospel. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 13 of Mark 9, and we're going to be considering the transfiguration together today. So you've had just a moment to turn there. We will have the verses up here on the screen for you. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, you can look on there and follow along with us. So before we say anything else or think about anything else together, let's listen now to the word of God from Mark chapter nine, beginning in verse two. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. 
Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written, of him. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. I want us to consider this text today in two parts. So there'll be a part one and then a kind of reflection in the middle, a part two, and then a closing meditation. That's the the lay of the land for this morning. So we'll begin with part one. I'm giving this one the the heading up the mountain. So you can guess that part two is going to be down the mountain. So up the mountain, down the mile. That's basically what we're thinking about today. You can see it in the text as clearly as I can. We'll be looking for part one up the mountain in verses two through eight. So put your eyes now on verse two. Six days after Jesus had made that statement in verse one about how there would be some living, some standing in his presence as he was speaking that would not taste death until they had seen the kingdom of God come in power. Six days later, Jesus takes three of the 12 with him up on a high mountain. He takes Peter and James and John. It was just the four of them. These men, as I've already said in the introduction, would see Christ's glory. They would see the kingdom of God come with power. Right? We thought very briefly together last week about chapter 9, verse 1, that we would see the kingdom of God coming in power in the transfiguration. The kingdom of God would come with power in Christ's resurrection. The kingdom of God would come with power at Pentecost as the Holy Spirit would be given to all of God's people, all ultimately pointing to that final consummative coming of the kingdom of God at the end of history. You can, again, refer to last week's sermon for more comments on verse 1, which is a verse that many people have offered many various things in terms of its understanding. But quite simply, we see at the end of verse 2, I love how the Bible just straightforwardly says stuff. And he was transfigured before them. There it is. Verse 3, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. That's kind of a cool little modifying phrase, just so that we understand this is not an earthly situation. This is a heavenly whiteness, you know, that's going on. Jesus momentarily appeared to the three disciples in his glorified state. What was it like exactly? We don't know. We don't know all the details. It was glorious, it was radiant, it was even terrifying. The text is going to tell us that later, that Peter and James and John were terrified. It's understandable. Peter would later write of this experience, and he would say that he and James and John had been eyewitnesses of Christ's majesty. And then he wrote, for when we received honor and glory from, excuse me, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him, by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with Jesus on the holy mountain. That's what he wrote in 2 Peter chapter one about this experience. Pretty remarkable stuff. In verse four, we have some more remarkable stuff happen. We have two of the most prominent figures from redemptive history appear. Resurrected in some sense, glorified, appear. There they are. Moses and Elijah. And they have a conversation with Jesus. This is like mind-blowing, like to think about the fact. Moses and Elijah and Christ having a conversation. Moses, we would understand rightly, to not only be a prominent figure in in the history of redemption, but Moses, more specifically, is representative of God's law. So kind of keep that in mind. That's important. 
as we understand from a redemptive historical perspective what's going on in the transfiguration. Moses is representative of the law. Elijah, you can surmise, is representative of the prophets. So here, the gospel writer, Mark, he knows what he's doing. He's writing from a redemptive historical perspective. He is clearly linking the old covenant and the new covenant. He links the law and the prophets to Jesus and the apostles. So if you want to think of it in these terms, Moses and Elijah were messengers of redemption to come, whereas Christ's apostles would be messengers of redemption accomplished. This is a transition season. It's a big moment in redemptive history, the ministry of Christ on earth. As we look at verses 5 and 6 together, Peter now begins to speak. He addresses Jesus, says, Rabbi, teacher or master, right? It's good that we're here. It's like, Peter, thank you for that. Let's make three tents. You know, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. Verse 6 tells us that Peter, and I imagine James and John as well, they don't know what to say. I mean, no kidding, right? Like, not sure what to say as I behold all of this glory in front of me. I mean, seeing the glorified Christ, yeah, speechless, right? It's what you would be. But I resonate with Peter as a very talkative individual. I've had to learn, I still struggle with this, but I've had to learn how to let silence just be silence, right? You ever been in those conversations where I feel like I need to rescue us from the awkward silence so then I don't really know what to say, but I just kind of talk. I imagine it's like that, but, you know, at a much greater kind of multiplied scale. Don't know what to say, but I'm talking. Peter makes a comment on behalf of the three that demonstrates that reality, that he didn't know what to say. And then in verses 7 and 8, on the heels of Peter's comment, a cloud overshadows the mountain. Now, immediately we should be thinking, okay, what's the cloud thing and a mountain thing? Like, well, where did that happen before? That happened on Sinai, right? When God gave the law to Moses, a thick cloud and also like fire and lightning and all that kind of stuff overshadowed, covered the mountain as Moses was up there. So again, we have this cloud, thick cloud coming over the mountain. Great revelation coming from God to the people of God. As Peter, this is an important observation. As Peter is stammering right, about Jesus and Moses and Elijah, God the Father shows up and speaks. Now, notice this. He doesn't, he doesn't say a word about Moses. He doesn't say a word about Elijah. Who's he talk about? He talks about one person. He talks about his son. I mean, now Moses and Elijah, they're there. It's a big deal. I mean, if you're a Jew, that's a big deal. But the father shows up as Peter is kind of stumbling all over himself, understandably so, and says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. It's as if to say, you have the text in front of you. It's as if to say, take your eyes off of Moses. Take your eyes off of Elijah. Concern yourself with my beloved son who is here. Listen to him. He is the one who's going to save his people. He is the one who has all authority. He is the one who speaks for me. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, right? Hebrews 1. Moses and Elijah, we understand, are as great, and I use quotes, as great as they might be in terms of their roles in redemptive history. They are simply witnesses to the one that redemptive history is about. This is underlined, this reality of the fact that, like, don't worry so much, don't concern yourself so much, don't focus on Elijah and Moses. Don't think about building a tent for Elijah and Moses and Jesus. Concern yourself with my son is underlined by verse 8. Put your eyes there. 
And suddenly, after the father speaks, looking around, so suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Why? It's because he's the one that matters. Only Jesus remains. Moses and Elijah have disappeared. It's good for us just to continually be reminded because I don't know if you're like me, you can tend to forget what the most important things are, even as you look to the Bible sometimes. To be reminded that as great as other figures in the Bible might be in terms of their roles in redemptive history, that the point above all points of Scripture is Christ. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And I just lost my amplification. All right, I think we're okay. We'll see. We'll monitor it. So just consider that a brief aside. We'll come back. The Emmaus Road, Luke 24, Jesus said what I just read. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to the two disciples with him in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus said also to a crowd of Jews, we'll, we'll deal, it's fine. Just get me batteries, we'll be fine. I find that generally it's good to just acknowledge the awkwardness. We're just going to kind of press on through this. I'll keep talking and then they'll fix my batteries in just a second. So to a Jewish audience in John chapter 5, Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. The scriptures are great. The scriptures bear witness about God and about us and all kinds of things. But you think in them you have eternal life. Well, it is those scriptures that bear witness about me. Eternal life is found in me, Christ says. Think about the words of Paul. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The law, Moses, the prophets, Elijah, bear witness to the righteousness of God that is given to sinners through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the point of Scripture. Jesus is the one in whom we hope. The law and the prophets bear witness to Him. We talk about this a lot. Thank you, Ron. We appreciate your work, brother, in so many ways. The whole of God's plan of redemption finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He's the one mediator between God and man. Our hope as we gather here this Lord's Day, and our hope as we gather here on any Lord's Day, is that Jesus really has accomplished everything that a sinner could ever need in order to live with God. Like, that it's really over. Like, as you sit and think about your life, and you think about, okay, I'm still struggling against sin. I'm battling my own corruption. I've never really kept any one of God's commandments at the heart level. I've never really kept any single one of God's commandments at the thought level, at the desire level, even at the deed level. I've broken them all. As you reflect on that honestly, you have to wrestle with the question, okay, because that's true, where is your hope and confidence? It is completely, has to be, completely outside of you, completely outside of us in Christ Jesus alone as the one mediator between God and man who atoned for every sin, who satisfied the wrath of God, who gave us his righteousness as he took upon himself our corruption. As you sit and wrestle and you think about the sins that you've committed, even this week, ask yourself this question. What sin, if I'm, if I'm sitting here this morning trusting in Christ, what sin have I committed that Jesus' life and death don't cover? There isn't one. There is not one. That's the hope and that's the confidence. The law and the prophets bear witness about Christ. Moses and Elijah give way to Jesus, even here on the Mount of Transfiguration, because the plan of redemption is accomplished through Christ alone. The first, greatest, 
and last application of the Bible is always trust Jesus. Trust him. He is incredibly glorious and awesome beyond any comparison. He loves you in the sense that he gave his life for you. He desires that you would be with him forever to behold this kind of glory forever and ever and forever after that. Trust him. Rest in him. He is sufficient to save a wretch even like you or me. It's good news. Before we move on to the kind of down the mountain, and I don't mean this to be understood as like, oh, we're on the mountaintop and then we're in the valley. That's not necessarily what I mean. But before we go down the mountain, I want us to reflect briefly on just seeing and beholding Jesus and how that happens. How is it that today we behold Christ? I mean, what Peter and James and John saw was incredible on this Mount of Transfiguration. I mean, what they witnessed in just seeing Jesus glorified is incredible. And then God the Father showing up and speaking audibly is like jaw drop, game changer moment. And I think for us, we tend to think like, maybe, maybe not even us in this room, I assume some of us have, certainly people outside of these walls would, would say something like this. You know, if God would show up and do that, then of course I would believe. Or if God would show up and do that, like if he would manifest himself in a thick cloud and talk to us this morning, that would change my life forever. We tend to think that that kind of revelation, that kind of experience, is the greatest kind of testimony about Christ that could ever be. And it was great. I mean, there's no arguing that. But it's not the best. At least that's not what Peter came to think. So in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, this same man who had this phenomenal mountaintop experience of seeing the resurrected, well not resurrected, but the glorified Christ in his resurrected state in one sense, wrote these words. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then this, and we have something more sure, more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter, carried along by the Holy Spirit himself, wrote that we have something more sure in these scriptures than even what he beheld on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's what the book says. To us, we're like, Peter, that's insane. It's crazy, man. But it's not, actually. It's not actually crazy. We've thought already, and we will some more today, about the fact that in spite of everything that the disciples had seen, including this, they still lacked a lot of understanding about redemption and how it would be accomplished. On top of that, though, the same voice, embrace this and own this, the same voice that spoke from the cloud speaks from the scripture. So in other words, if we today wish to behold Christ, we will behold him and see him in the scriptures. It's where we get to know him. It's where we see his glory. This is why the word of God has such a primary place in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, in particular in the tradition of which we hail, in the Reformed tradition. There's a reason why word is primary. It's because of this reality. We know God and behold Christ through the word. 
as the Spirit uses the reading of Scripture and as the Spirit uses, in particular, this crazy thing called preaching to allow us to see the glories of Christ and the wonders of redemption. We have in the Scripture the complete witness, not a lot of it, the complete witness of all of God's word regarding his son. So in that sense, it's better than what Peter and James and John saw. We have the whole thing. They saw his glory. Yes, amen. But we have the entire story of redemption presented to us in the Bible. As the Holy Spirit, so track with me, as the Holy Spirit illumines the word for God's people, we see Jesus, his person, and his work more clearly than Peter and James and John saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now that's, that's a mind-blowing thought. But as we behold Christ from the entire witness of the Bible and the word of God is preached and Christ is held out, we see Jesus in his person and work more fully and more clearly than these three men saw him on that mountain that day. Praise God that's true. I mean, like, whoa, ordinary means of the word, yes, and the Holy Spirit uses it for extraordinary ends to show us the Son. So that's the, the reflection. Thank God for his word. Part two. So we've gone up the mountain. We thought a little bit about the word of God together. We're now going down. Get your grade breaking ready. Here we go. As the four, verse nine, as they're coming down the mountain, Jesus charges them to not tell anyone about what they had seen until he had risen from the dead. Again, the mission can't be compromised, right? Keep this between us, guys. I know pretty mind-blowing experience, but don't tell people until I'm resurrected from the dead. It's normal conversation, right? It's kind of like what Ron and I talk about at elders meetings, right? Please. It's like, okay, Jesus, sure. The disciples do as he says, verse 10. They kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. Okay, so again, we see, on the one hand, they have beheld some awesome stuff and they've understood a lot. Peter has confessed Jesus to be the Messiah. And there's still a lot that they don't yet understand. Like, what does this rising from the dead mean? They had not yet fully understood, as we thought about last week, that the Christ would suffer and die. Because again, remember, in this era, in this context, amongst Jewish people, they would have been looking for a king Messiah, a triumphant king to come. And that's right. The son of David, the champion of God's people, the great deliverer, the one who would take them into their land forever. Absolutely right. But they did not look for, nor were they seeking a suffering Christ, the one who would also atone for the sins of his people, the one who would make intercession for them. The disciples in this very text are wondering what this resurrection from the dead might mean. Realize that as they're asking that question, they, like any other Jewish person of that era, would have had one category for resurrection. It would have been the final one, right at the end of history. They believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't, but those who followed the Pharisees certainly did. There will be a resurrection. It's going to happen at the last day. Which makes entire sense about their question that they ask in verse 11. Right? Jesus, you're talking about resurrection. So why did the scribes say, because they're hearing him say that, and they're like, well, I guess the final resurrection is about to happen. You know? Verse 11, they ask, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? So the scribes, in saying that, we're referencing the prophet Malachi that we heard today. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, right? So they're asking, like, Jesus, help us understand all this. And he says to them, verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. So he agrees with the prophet Malachi, not that we're surprised by that. But Jesus is going to do what he always does. He's going to help us understand our Old Testament. He's going to help us understand what Malachi was really driving at and really saying 
about Elijah who was to come. Jesus goes on. He pivots briefly. Elijah does come first to restore all things. And let me throw this at you. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer? So again, here we go. We're going back to the suffering of the Christ. We're going back to the rejection of the Christ. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? He's going to continue to talk about this. I mean, we're going to see it over and over. He's going to keep coming back to, I'm going to die. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to rise again. Suffering and rejection were written of the Son of Man, of the Christ, in the Old Testament. Again, this is where not only Jesus, but the New Testament apostles help us to understand our Bibles rightly. So if I'll just say this, if you are not, and that's a proverbial you, not you guys, but if you are understanding your Old Testament in a way that is not the way that Jesus and the apostles understand the Old Testament, you're wrong. Flat out, you're wrong. And so when we read Christ or the apostles interpret the Old Testament, we should take notice of it and say, ah, there we go. Now we're beginning to understand. All right, so how was it written of the Christ that he would suffer and be rejected? Psalm 22, written by David, a messianic psalm, reads this way. Just listen to the word of God. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, and they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's in the Old Testament. My mentor in the faith, I remember him talking about reading that as a new Christian. Psalm 22. And he called his pastor at the time, he's a teenager, he called his pastor and was like, I think I've got a misprint, like in my Bible. You know, like I, something's wrong because I'm reading this in Psalm 22. It's the Old Testament. This is about Jesus. And his pastor was basically, well, yeah, exactly. It is about Christ. The suffering and the rejection of the Son of Man is prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53. We read it last week. We're going to read it again. It's a phenomenal passage. Beginning in verse 3, it was written of the servant of the Lord. He was despised and rejected by men. There we go. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off? Because he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. For the glory set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, right? And is now seated at the right hand of God. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil excuse me, with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It was written of the Son of Man that he would suffer. Daniel chapter 9. Daniel has given us this great vision in chapter 7 of the Son of Man, the heavenly divine Son of Man. In chapter 9 and verse 26, Daniel writes of a time when the anointed ones shall be cut off and have nothing. Zechariah 13 and verse 7, the prophet writes, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, as the Lord speaks through the prophet. Against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. It was written that the Son of Man would suffer and be rejected and cut off. So when Jesus asks that question, we could, we could cite many more texts. There's just a few of them. So when he asks, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? It's written that way in the book. But in verse 13, we'll put our eyes back on our passage for today. Jesus returns to Elijah. So he's already said Elijah does come first. So he's affirmed what the prophet Malachi has said. And then he tells them more. But I tell you that Elijah has come. It's already happened. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Let's think about that for a minute. The Elijah who was to come before the great and awesome day of the Lord was John the Baptist. Jesus says this in like pointedly, he's imply, he implies it a number of places like here in our text today. But in Matthew 11, verses 12 through 14, Jesus says these words. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. For all of the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, like if you have eyes to see it, he is Elijah who is to come. John the Baptist the forerunner of the Christ. Just as, and so even Jesus says this here, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. But where is it written that the forerunner, that John the Baptist would suffer? Well, we see it in the suffering of the prophet Elijah, who he's the fulfillment of, right? So track with me here. When we read about the life of Elijah, most pointedly in 1 Kings, we know that he suffered and had to flee for his life and was scared and all kinds of other things and was treated terribly by King Ahab and by Jezebel, his wife. So in, in other words, as Jesus is saying, just like Elijah suffered at the hands of Ahab and Jezebel, so too John, the Elijah who has come, suffered at the hands of Herod and Herodias. Right? You can see that, how that works biblically. So again, I just kind of, before we go to our closing meditation, want to reiterate how Jesus and his apostles are so helpful to us in understanding our Bibles. So that when we read something like that, and when we see patterns, types, trajectories in the Old Testament, and we see those things being fulfilled in the new covenant, pointing forward always to the new heavens and the new earth, we're on the right track because that is how Christ and the apostles understand the Bible. So now let's turn our attention, friends, to just a, a closing meditation. This is pertaining to the relationship between the Father and the Son and the covenant that they made before the world started that they would save a people. And then what does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? That wasn't really a heading. That was a description. Like that would be the longest heading ever. It's like a Puritan title, you know, like really long. All right, so the first thing that we can say about God is that he is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And he exists in three persons. We talk about this in membership class every time. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There, before the foundation of the world, was perfect love and perfect joy that existed between the persons of the Godhead. I mean, Jesus' high priestly prayer, John 17, will talk about 
the love of the Father to him, the Son, that existed before the world began. We know that that was the case. So in verse 7 of our passage today, you can put your eyes back there. When God the Father shows up on the scene, the cloud overshadows the mountain, and he speaks. This is the second time that he has spoken audibly in Mark's gospel. The first time was at Jesus' baptism. Have you noticed, both times he speaks, the first thing that comes out of his mouth? Both times. He speaks of his son, and he speaks of the fact that this is the beloved. This is my son whom I love. Mark 1.11, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, or you are my son, the beloved one. With you I am well pleased. Chapter 9 and verse 7, this is my beloved son. Again, this is my son, the beloved one. Listen to him. The father is giving us a glimpse. He is testifying to the love that has always existed between him and the son. It's a beautiful thought in and of itself. But it gets better for us. You see, in eternity past, we're told in Scripture that God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, determined to save for themselves a people out of the mass of fallen humanity. It's known in theological language as the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption that happened before the world started. This covenant was born out of love and joy and glory and grace. We read of it maybe as clearly as anywhere in Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 3, the apostle writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as, here we go, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved one. In him, we have redemption, that is in Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Praise God. This Love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit results in this covenant that they make together. We're going to save a people. And it's obvious from Ephesians 1 and other places in the Bible that that redemption would be accomplished by none other than my son, the beloved one. Son, you will save them. They will be our people. Mine they were, I give them to you and you will die for them, John 6. 1 Peter 1. 18 through 21. Peter writes this way to the saints, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. So silver or gold didn't ransom you, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here we go. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So it was known before the world began that Christ would be the savior of God's people. And then it happened in time and space. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, Christ died for us. When the fullness of time had come, he was born of woman under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Imagine. So, like, in your mind, you're thinking, okay, like, my salvation is not fragile. Like, my eternity 
is not riding on something as fragile as my devotion or my will or my fortitude. My salvation and my eternity are riding on the purposes of God Almighty. Planned from forever ago. Accomplished by Christ 2,000 years ago. Like This is like rock right under your feet. Okay, so imagine in the councils of eternity, the world has been created. Time and space are happening, right? There didn't used to be time and there didn't used to be space. Like my mind's exploded. But then God makes the world. Time and space begin and history starts. At some point in the councils of eternity, as time and space are unfolding, can you imagine when the father looks to the son and he says, son, it's time. It's time. Go and save your people. Go and do it. Like, when you start to think in these terms, it helps you realize like I am an absolute fool and I am arrogant to think that I could ever contribute anything to my salvation. Like Jesus has done this. This has always been the plan. So for us, this means some of the things that we've already thought about. But more, maybe just to think about it for a second. For my own sake and for you, people I love and care for, my brothers and sisters, like as we walk out of this place today, you're going to encounter hard things. A lot of you have really hard things going on in your lives right now. You're going to suffer. You're going to struggle. You're going to be weak. And so know that your eternity and your salvation are secure. That the end of the story is secure for you because it is grounded in the purposes and the love of God for you. Your eternity is grounded in the love and the work of Christ in your place. It is objective, meaning outside of you, meaning like you don't affect the work of Christ. He did that. It is declarative, meaning it's over. Meaning like nothing is left to be done for your redemption to be accomplished. It is not as though God kickstarted you and then you need to keep yourself justified. That's not the witness of the Bible. The witness of the scripture is God has saved you. He has justified you. He is sanctifying you. He will glorify you. And it's over. So sometimes when people hear this stuff talked about, right, this eternity past stuff and the sovereign will of God and the particular atonement accomplished by Christ and you hear the word election, unconditional election, people will begin to ask this question, rightly so. They'll ask, okay, I'm hearing you, brother. I think I'm tracking. But how do I know if I'm elect? How do I know if that's me? That's a real question. The answer, the, the answer to that, first of all, let's say this out of the gate. The answer to that question could be found nowhere in you. The question is, for you, in your life, how would I know if I'm elect? Do you trust Christ? Are you looking to Jesus? Are you looking away from yourself and your own merit and your own righteousness? Are you looking away from your own sinful patterns of living? knowing that that's ruin and disaster, right? You have made the word in the Bible for repentance is a change of mind, right? Have you had that where I have changed my mind about Jesus and about me? Are you looking to Christ? So the answer, if you say, yeah, I'm looking to Jesus. And I would say, my friend, these promises of God are for you. This rock under your feet is yours. If you're looking to Christ, because in our experience, we ask the question, like, my life, my life doesn't stack up well enough. Am I holy enough to be with God forever? Am I good enough for these things to be about me, that God chose me before the foundation of the world? Am I good enough? The answer to that question is most certainly no, you're not. I'm not. 
You were chosen before the foundation of the world, not because you were something. You were chosen before the foundation of the world so that in Christ Jesus, you might be something. Namely, presented holy and blameless before the throne of God in Christ. That's Ephesians 1 language. We were chosen and predestined to be presented holy and blameless before the throne of God in Christ. Not because you were something, that you might be something. A lot of times people are wary of coming to church because they think that, oh, well, I, can't, I can't go hang out with those religious people. I can't go hang out with all those people that have it all together. You know, the, the smiles are there and the hair's in place and life is orderly. It looks pretty. I'm a mess. I can't go to church. Which is why we rejoice all the time from the moment that the welcome happens here at CBC to just remind us all, like, we're in need. We come weak, not strong. And even if there are any of us in the congregation who are deluded enough into thinking that we're crushing life, like, hey, maybe let's think about the first commandment for a moment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I think we all know we're done. I've never done that. We're done. Our hope is Christ alone. I've said enough, friends, as we land the plane, as you leave and as you encounter suffering and as you encounter difficulty, like the prophet Jeremiah does in Lamentations, this I call to mind, right? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and I will hope in you. Trust Christ as you leave and encounter suffering and hardship and difficulty. We have been promised that there is a glory coming that is beyond our comprehension. And we have been told that that glory is secured for us, that we will be with God because God planned it a long time ago and because Jesus has done it. Praise be to his name. And so we can rest in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and ask that you would bless the preaching of your word even as the sermon is over, we pray that you would, by your spirit, take your word and do your good work in us, that you would overcome even technical difficulties and distractions and do your good work. We know you're able to. We thank you for your plan of redemption. We thank you for the covenant of redemption that you made with your son before the world began. We thank you, Lord Jesus, very personally for coming to die for us. Father, it thrills our hearts in our good moments. It thrills our hearts to think that we will get to be a part of this kind of love and this kind of glory forever. And at the same time, right now, this life can be hard. And so we pray for your grace and we pray for your help. We pray that you would sustain our faith in Christ and that you would help us to cling to the hope that we have in him. And we pray that you would even use the Lord's table now to do just that. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.